0: Welcome to the Egyptian History Podcast, Episode 7 – He Appears Like the Sun Towering over the western skyline, the largest stone monument in early human history had been completed. Over 140 metres high, and with approximately 2.3 million stone slabs used to build its masonry, the Great Pyramid of Khufu was a triumph of Egyptian engineering and mathematical precision. Its angles and sides are accurate to a phenomenally close margin, with less than a centimeter's difference between each side. Within the pyramid itself, the burial chamber sat high up within the masonry, a feat unmatched in Egyptian funeral architecture before or since. Outside, the pyramid dominated a vast plateau west of the Nile, and the extensive field of master tombs enshrined the bodies of the king's loyal nobility and relations. But what next? Having orchestrated a building work the likes of which had never been seen, where was Khufu going to go from here? The answer is nowhere. The king died after approximately 23 years on the throne, and his legacy was conflicted. The Greek historian Herodotus wrote that he was remembered as a tyrant, but an Egyptian tale from the 5th dynasty remembers him as a wise ruler, capable of seeing the importance of stability and justice in governance. It was undeniable that under his rule, Egyptians had achieved some great things. But what input did Khufu really have into this achievement, and how much had his people sacrificed to build what was essentially the largest grave in the world? The extent of Egypt's sacrifice will forever be unknown. The excavated remains from Giza are those of the wealthy, granted leave to build their tombs west of the Great Pyramid, and they do not tell us the hardships endured by the labourers who hauled stones up the pyramid ramps or the men and women who supported the effort in more domestic situations nearby. Examination of human remains from the elite tombs shows that erosion of the teeth was a major problem in Egypt. In producing bread, large amounts of sand or grit were liable to be embedded in the dough, and when baked, simply stuck around. Having eaten bread cooked in the traditional manner during my recent excavation in Egypt, I can tell you that even a well-sheltered bakery with a capable baker still produces bread that has sand and grit in every bite. A lifetime of eating this wore down the teeth, causing cavities and abscesses and pain to all consumers. Bread and beer formed the core of the Egyptian diet, and this was no exception for the Giza workers. But such a diet was not necessarily a weak one. Indeed, modern attempts to reconstruct the Egyptian bakeries at Giza suggest that the barley and emmer bread used in the pyramid town produced a large, roughly bell-shaped loaf that was high in starch and calories. I haven't tested it myself, but it is suggested that just one of these loaves could sustain a man for a couple of days. It may not have been an overly satisfying meal, but it did the job and didn't require very elaborate methods to produce. Supplementing the bread and beer were fish, sheep, goats, and cattle, which could be collected in large enough amounts to give every man a protein infusion at least every few days. Incidentally, chickens were not introduced into Egypt until the Greco-Roman period, and besides the waterfowl and geese in the Nile Valley, there wasn't much consumption of poultry except at the very wealthy and elite level. So the laborers subsisted on bread and beer, supplemented by some meat. They lived in barracks southeast of the pyramid itself, in small groupings that may have been based around their pre-existing social or community connections. Whether the workers knew each other before they arrived at the construction site, they ate together, worked together, slept in the same barracks, and served all major duties as a group. Such arrangements tend to produce strong feelings of fraternity and remain a staple of the military in many countries today. The workforce was housed together, as I described last episode, and this settlement at Giza seems to have operated continuously throughout the Fourth Dynasty, with one exception. See, when Khufu died, one of his younger sons, named Djedefre, ascended to the throne. His name means, he who endures like Rei, and as far as we can tell he was a secondary son of Khufu, and came to the throne only because his elder brother died before their father. Performing the proper funerary rituals for Khufu, Djedefre sealed the boat pits which were dug beside the Great Pyramid, from whence come the great cedar ships that now sit in their own museum next to the tomb. Jedefrae's cartouche, or royal seal, was found in the boat pit along with graffiti carved by the workers. This gives testament to his fidelity and obedience to his father's legacy as well as the proper rituals required to legitimise his own rule. The future of the Giza necropolis now came into Jedefrae's hands. A new pyramid would need to be begun quickly, for the king seems to have been at least middle-aged by the time he ascended the throne. There was plenty of space next to khufu's monument for another pyramid but Jedafre decided to be different, and abandoned the Giza Plateau in order to move 8 kilometres or 5 miles, northwards to a region now known as Abu Roash. Much has been made of this decision in older scholarship, but none of the explanations is fully satisfactory in itself, and must be combined with others to make complete sense. Jedafre was the first king to incorporate into his titulary the term Sa-Re, which means son of Re. Considering this, his decision to move northwards may have had a connection to the Temple of Ra at Heliopolis, which is east of the Nile, and now a suburb of modern Cairo. But there are other factors involved, and it is worth considering that we have almost no archaeological or documentary evidence for there actually being an operational temple at Heliopolis during this period. Evidence exists from the Middle Kingdom, but none survives from the Old Kingdom. As they say, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence but it does mean that the conclusion that Jedefre moved northwards simply to associate himself with a temple that may or may not have really been there is somewhat weak at best. There is another explanation that we may combine with the Sun Temple theory to arrive at something close to the historical truth. When we look at Jedefre's two predecessors, Khufu and Sneferu, we are greeted with men who, almost as a matter of course, established their burial monuments in new areas from what had been used before. Abandoning Saqqara, Sneferu first built at Meidum, and then at Dashur. Khufu, in turn, abandoned Dashur in favour of Giza. With this legacy, and the multiple mini-pyramids favoured by Huni of the Third Dynasty, it is not hard to rationalise that Djedefre's decision to move to Abu Roash was a personal glorification as well as a theologically inspired choice. The King's burial monument was as much a matter of personal prestige as theological function, Naturally, it was unlikely that Khufu's monument could be outshone in sheer size, so Jedefrae moved far enough away that the Great Pyramid appeared only on the horizon and would not overshadow his own tomb. At the same time, he assured that the necropolis springing up around the royal tomb would only be associated with his own divine ascension, and this would give it a level of permanence unlikely to be achieved if his tomb sat forever in the shadow of Khufu. Then there's the economic rationale. The Great Pyramid had taken approximately 20 years to complete, and would have pushed royal resources to the absolute limit. Thousands of workers had been motivated day in, day out, for years, and it had to be fed, housed, medicated, and entombed within a single region. Continuing a project on that scale, which Jedefray would have been ego-bound to do had he built at Giza, was probably not sustainable for the kingdom at the moment. Jedefrae's pyramid was much smaller than his father's, which does match up with the idea that royal wealth was a bit drained after Khufu's enormous project and needed a breather space. Jedefrae ruled for just eight years, in which time his pyramid was probably completed in its essential architectural form. Today, however, it is a badly damaged mound of stone, because the Romans stripped the monument of about 80% of its material in order to build their own monuments and structures at Alexandria, which is northwards on a branch of the Nile. Deciding not to replicate Khufu's internal burial chamber, Jedhif reinstated the subterranean model previously favoured before his father came to the throne, and which would be used forevermore. The finished monument was approximately 60 metres tall, less than half that of the Great Pyramid. It is suspected that Jedhif died either not long before or just after the main structure of the pyramid was completed. His mortuary temple seems to have been a rush job, suggesting that he was ailing or dead at the time that it was built. If so, it was probably completed by his brother Khafre, who came to the throne next. The importance of the mortuary temple really cannot be overstated. I have skimmed over it briefly so far, but I'm going to devote a few minutes now to really get into what it meant, how it functioned, who operated it, and how long it lasted. From the earliest dynasties, the mortuary temple had formed a fundamental component of the king's burial complex. It was in this sacred space that offerings could be made on behalf of or to the soul of the king, in order to provide nourishment for him in the celestial realm. Given that the Egyptians rationalized the soul as a very real entity, it followed logically that the soul required food and nourishment to sustain itself in its duties with Re. The mortuary temple was where this ritual took place. Within the main sanctum, statues of the king were erected that stood in for his physical form. We have many surviving examples of these images, and they are among the most beautiful of Old Kingdom statuary. I have placed some images on the podcast website, which is located at www.egyptianhistory.libsyn.com. These finely chiseled images present an image that is about 50% reality-based and 50% idealized, In other words, the statues of each king are distinct enough from one another that it is clear they are based on the real face of the person, but they are given certain qualities that are not personal but rather represent ideal features. For example, each king bears a serene expression with just a hint of a smile conveyed at the corner of the mouth. Their eyes are almond-shaped and their lips full. In this way they convey an image of peaceful eternity and when you see several different kings lined up together, it is clear that the image of the serene king is essential to the overall iconography. But beyond these universal elements, the cheeks, nose, eyebrows and forehead are proportioned slightly differently for each king. In this way we can get a small sense of individualism and an element of portraiture, but the overall effect is a mixture between conformity and unique identity. These statues then combined the personality and features of the king with his responsibilities and roles as an eternal ruler, guardian of Ma'at throughout eternity. When given offerings by the priests of the mortuary temple, these statues could be relied upon to sustain the soul of the king in its many duties in heaven. The mortuary temples of the fourth dynasty were placed on the eastern side of the pyramid, facing towards the rising sun. They were reached by means of a long causeway or covered walkway, made of fine limestone. When the priests entered the valley temple, which may have been adjacent to a canal or artificial harbour, they proceeded up the causeway towards the mortuary temple. As they walked, they sang hymns and burned spices to anoint the air. Reaching the mortuary temple itself, they anointed the royal statues with oils and burned more spices before it. The use of burnt offerings is a common element of religious practice, ancient and modern, and it is thought that burning allows the material to transcend the barrier between this world and the supernatural. The statue, like modern Hindu or Buddhist images, was clothed with real cloth. The priests removed this periodically, and replaced it with new clothes that were anointed with oils. The upkeep of the statue seems to have been quite a performance and it is worth remembering as well that these images were not the somewhat lifeless stone visages we see today. They were painted in a lifelike manner, the eyes were given pupils, the skin was a reddish-brown, the eyebrows darkened, and the beards black. The hair of the pharaohs was black in reality, but royal statues always depict the king with a crown, and the hair is nowhere to be seen. As you may already know, Egyptians seem to have shaved their heads as a matter of course, and wore wigs reflecting their status or their role. The royal statues reflect this. The king wears no wig, and the crown replaces it, befitting his supreme power. For lower nobility, a rounded, beetles esque hairstyle is the most common adornment. For women, long tresses bound into two heavy plates are the standard fashion in this era. This appears on queens and goddesses as well as common women, though the former tend to have emblems or small crowns to denote their role and the aspect of society that they protected. So these lifelike statues or as near to lifelike as the Egyptians could achieve, were offered various types of food as well as beer and wine. Beyond this, prayers were recited invoking the deities to commune with the king's soul and for the king to perform his duties with vigor and justice. We don't have any examples of these hymns or prayers from the fourth dynasty itself They begin to appear at the end of the 5th dynasty, and become really popular in the 6th. When the podcast reaches that point in a few weeks, I will begin to incorporate these hymns more and more into the audio itself. I should clarify that what I mean is that we don't have the written examples. We know that they were spoken or sung earlier in this period because of references to the cults from earlier times. But the actual documents themselves, the carved inscriptions, do not appear for quite some time. Leaving the temple for the day, the priests returned to their homes in the nearby pyramid settlement, more on that in a future lecture, and in some cases would have moved on to the temple of another king. Evidence from the 5th dynasty shows that a priest could serve in the mortuary cult of more than one king simultaneously, and it is fairly likely that this was true in the 4th dynasty as well, though of course we can't be certain. One prominent Egyptologist claims that prior to the 5th dynasty, the priesthood did not exist as a full-time profession, by which he meant that most men who served as priests did so among other more varied duties. Until the 5th dynasty, we do not see the kind of specialisation in roles which would allow a man to fill one particular function all day, every day. Whether this is strictly accurate or not is debated, and the evidence is too weak to make a definitive conclusion either way but I think there is some legitimacy to the claim. Whether there were any men who functioned solely as priests in their day job or not cannot be proved for certain, but those men whose titles survive always seem to be priests while filling other roles at the same time. So maybe there were some dedicated priests, but for the most part a man served in the temple as just one small part of his daily responsibilities. The men who functioned as these priests and operated the mortuary temples as both institution and a sacred space tended to be linked by birth or marriage to the king. Royal connection formed the bedrock of the administrative government. Why should it be any different for the religious duties? I think it's been pretty clear so far that the notion of separation between secular and religious institutions would have been utterly inconceivable to the Egyptians, and with good reason. The entire cosmic order, the nature of existence itself, rested on a perfectly harmonious balance between benign and just rule and proper veneration of the supernatural beings who ruled Egypt's destiny. To quickly sum up and return to our narrative history, the mortuary temple, operated by priests linked to the king and his family, functioned to venerate and nourish the soul of the king. While the pyramid itself housed and protected the king's body, facilitating the union with Ray that was an essential undercurrent of religious thought at the time, the mundane operation of the temple enabled the king's soul to be given the energy it required to fulfill its duties. Let us return to Giza. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Jedefray died after about eight years on the throne. His young brother ascended to the throne, taking the name Kafre, which means he appears like Ray. Among the first acts of the new king was the proper burial of his brother and the hasty completion of the mortuary temple for Djedefre's pyramid. While the pyramid complex as a whole was technically unfinished, and probably not as nicely decorated as Djedefre would have liked, the important thing was that the basic functional points, pyramid, burial chamber, and mortuary temple, were complete and ready to be used. Abandoning yet again the necropolis of his immediate predecessor, Khafre returned to the Giza Plateau. It was here, in the first years of his reign, that the Second Pyramid of Giza was begun, adjacent to the Great Pyramid of Khufu. 215 metres long on each side, or 705 feet, and 143 metres tall, 471 feet, the Pyramid of Khafre actually appears larger than its predecessor. This is a trick of the eye. Khafre's pyramid is 3 meters shorter than Khufu's, but it rests on a bedrock level that is 10 meters higher than the earlier tomb, and so appears to the unwary eye to be taller. The angle of its sides is also slightly steeper, giving it the false impression of size at least equal, if not greater to, than that of Khufu. This is why, in modern pictures, the pyramid of Khafre appears to be the larger one, and people often mistake it for the actual Great Pyramid. I'm not entirely sure why Khufu didn't build on this spot in the first place. Had he done so, his pyramid would have been unbeatable in sheer height and visual impression. I suspect that the disasters of Meidum and Dashur under Sneferu prompted Khufu's architect Hemiunu to approach the new monument with caution and not attempt to overplay his hand. Then, once the Great Pyramid was completed, the royal architects could congratulate themselves on a job well done and try their hand at steeper angles and more uneven terrain on which to build. Like the Great Pyramid, the tomb of Khafre sits atop a foundation designed to level out the ground, and this probably compensated for the slightly more unstable bedrock on which it sits. The whole establishment is laid out with precision close to that of the Great Pyramid, and it is possible that Hemiunu began the initial work later in his life, or at the very least, had some input with the successor. The pyramid is not quite as accurate as the Great Pyramid. Indeed, the four corners do not meet with perfect precision at the top, but instead have to twist slightly in order to f- properly form the apex. This makes me think that hemi Yunu was not really involved, and definitely not in charge of the whole operation. The guy would have had to be in his 60s by now anyway, even if he was alive. The pyramid... Aside from being slightly less accurate than Khufu's, also played it safe with the layout of the burial chamber. Rather than try to mimic the internal structure of Khufu's monument, the burial chamber was placed beneath the masonry, dug into the bedrock. It's a very nice little burial chamber. I had the pleasure of visiting it in January, and have put a picture of it for you on the website. There are no decorations or carvings, which is true of all the pyramids until the late 5th dynasty and the only decoration in the tomb is a graffito from the 19th century by Giovanni Belzoni, the first Western European explorer to enter the tomb on the 2nd of March in 1818. Like any good explorer, he was considerate enough to leave his name and date on the wall for posterity, where it remains today. The early European explorers were like that. They are an interesting group in themselves, and at some point I'll probably dedicate an episode or two to that part of Egypt's history. I could probably get at least a good hour of material just talking about Napoleon's expeditions and the early explorations by people like Balzoni or Petrie, and it's worth looking at. But that'll be many episodes down the line, so we'll get to it when we get to it. Khafre's architects were innovative in many respects. Beyond the pyramid itself, they expanded the size of the mortuary temple, dividing it into sections which were filled with statues of the king. These statues like the one I have posted on the website, displayed the king in that half-personal, half-idealized form, favoured by most Egyptian rulers, with an added icon of Horus resting behind the king's head, its wings sheltering him from either side. The statues of Khafre are, without doubt, among the most beautiful examples of classical Egyptian art you will ever find. Finely hued, impeccably sculpted, and perfectly designed from an ideological perspective, they are true masterpieces of the genre. The work performed by Carfrae's sculptors would become a benchmark by which future kings would design their statuary, and the inclusion of divine figures as protective emblems will produce some truly stunning work in the episodes to come. Each of the many statues arrayed throughout the mortuary temple was a vessel in which the soul of the king, called his ka, could reside and receive nourishment from the loyal priests who served the cult. They resided in semi-darkness, A limestone roof covered the complex, with small rectangular gaps in the ceiling to allow beams of light to enter. Remembering the importance of ray in this period, the gaps were positioned to illuminate the statues and bestow the energy and life-giving properties of sunlight upon the king's effigy. This hadn't been done in Khufu's mortuary temple as far as we can tell, and it seems to be a relatively new development under Khafre. Further excavation may prove that wrong but for now it seems that Carfrey's architects were operating with the sun god as a major element of their design parameters. Then, Carfrey took this mixture of ideology and architecture one step further. A rocky outcropping just north of the pyramid causeway seemed to offer a unique opportunity for some kind of extra embellishment to the pyramid complex. Taking this into serious consideration, Carfrey's royal architects and sculptors designed a monument that would marry the solar royal iconography of the cult of Rey with the self-glorifying tendencies of a monarch invested with absolute secular and ideological authority. Combining the power and strength of a lion's body with the majesty of a king's head, crowned and bearing the same serene expression as his statuary, Carfrey's sphinx, which we now know as the Great Sphinx, was born. The image of a lion appears in many near-eastern solar cults, and the use of a human head symbolizes the notion of great physical power governed by wisdom and intelligence above that of beasts. The image of Khafre in this form ties him as much to the traditional representations of the king, in which physical prowess was demonstrated at the said festival, or wisdom displayed in the just governance and proper obedience before the gods. Sphinxes were not a new development at this point. They appear in very broken forms among the statuary of earlier kings, but always seem to have been small, kind of an accessory to the larger, more important human figures. The size of this new Sphinx rather overturned that model, and ironically ended up outshining the pyramid itself in terms of infamy and popularity. There is a cliche that the Sphinx, like the Mona Lisa, is a riddle to be solved, or that it holds in expression the wisdom of the ages. Unfortunately, This has given some people the mistaken impression that the Sphinx has some kind of magical power, or that it holds within itself repositories of knowledge that have laid hidden for thousands of years. The most popular idea is that the Sphinx is something like 10,000 years old, and that beneath it is a chamber filled with tablets. I'm not going to devote too much of my attention to this, but it's worth a minute or two to debunk. As an Egyptologist and avid historian of all eras of human history, I can tell you right now that if there was ever even the slightest hint that such a chamber existed all the armies of the world could not stop the archaeological community from descending on the sphinx to find it beneath the chamber or sorry beneath the sphinx there are cavities caused by water and earthquake cracks do you know what's in them sand sand and rubbish that's been blown in over the past 100 years of tourism and the many thousands of years of before that As for the Sphinx's so-called advanced age, there's not much to say. Of course, the rocky outcropping is vastly older than the Sphinx itself, and the Egyptians did not build the Sphinx. They carved it from existing rock, and left it once it was done. I'm not sure if many of the pseudo-scientific people who claim the Sphinx is way more weathered than it should be are really aware of Egypt's environmental conditions. But I can tell you right now, in a desert environment, sitting next to one of the world's most polluted cities, and after 4,200 years of wind, sand, occasional rain, and now acid rain, yeah, the Sphinx is a bit beat up. It's weathered, it's aged, and it's damaged. But it's not so damaged and eroded that 4,200 years of history does not adequately explain that. Neither does the notion that the Sphinx was re-carved by the Egyptians based on an earlier monument. The length of the body is often noted, as it is far longer than it should be be proportional with the head, The problem with this idea is that the sphinx is carved from bedrock that was already fissured and damaged from geological activity. The geological layer on which the sphinx is resting on is near the southern edge of the plateau and has been subjected to geological movement far more than the higher regions on which the pyramids rest. The earthquakes and disruption of far more distant eras have fractured the bedrock from which the sphinx is carved in two distinct points, both on the body of the monument. The result, unfortunately, is that the rear legs had to be pushed back along the rock until they could be carved from more stable material, otherwise the legs would be permanently crumbling and in need of repair. So when someone points to that element of the Sphinx's construction, there's your answer. The bedrock is not entirely stable, and has been damaged by geological movement thanks to its position on the southern exposed edge of the plateau. This forced the architects to plan around the deficiencies in the rock itself, and the result is an elongated body, which looks, to those prone to such ideas, like something that has been recarved. It's that simple. The Sphinx itself was not the final word on Carfrae's monumental complex. A large temple was erected before the Lion Man Monument, with sanctuaries dedicated to the rising and setting sun. At the summer solstice, the Egyptian sun sets in a very particular location before it begins to return southwards. During these three days of every year, the sun sets between the Pyramid of Khufu and the Pyramid of Khafre, and if you were looking at this from the Nile, the silhouette of the sphinx's crown would also be visible. The sun setting between two pyramids is not only a visual and symbolic achievement, but also conforms to an Egyptian hieroglyph. This glyph, which shows the sun setting between two mounds, is pronounced akhet and is the logogram for the word horizon. The pyramid complex of Khufu was called, you guessed it, the Akhet Khufu, or Horizon of Khufu. In later eras, the entire Giza necropolis would simply be referred to as the Akhet, or Horizon. It's one of those rare instances where the power of symbols and visual cues is so perfectly encapsulated by a natural event that one truly catches a glimpse of the mindset of the Egyptians. For them, The deities and their journeys or experiences were not abstract concepts or stories, but very visible in the natural world. Carfrae's architects really hit a hole in one when they laid out the location and arrangement of this pyramid complex. An architecture major would weep with envy. In the 18th and 19th dynasties, during the New Kingdom, the Sphinx underwent the first of its major restorations. The crown prince Tutmosis IV, riding his chariot near the Sphinx, rested for a while in the shade of the creature's head. At that point, the basin in which the Sphinx rests had become so full of sand that the monument was buried up to its neck. Tutmosis soon fell asleep, resting in the shade of this ancient epitaph, and he dreamed that the Sphinx spoke to him. Invoking Tutmosis to clear the sand away from his body, the Sphinx promised the prince that he would ascend to the throne soon if he took care of the monument and restored the proper worship to it in the temple. Being a superstitious man, Tutmosis sprang into action and commissioned the clearing of sand from the sphinx's body and the temple nearby. Sure enough, the young prince soon succeeded his father to the throne and ordered a large granite steeler to be fashioned and erected between the front paws of the monument. Today, it remains where it was placed and can be seen between the paws of the sphinx against the chest. The steeler details Tutmosis's dream and the subsequent events, along with the promise of the king to venerate the god for eternity. For by this point, probably thanks to that special sunset during the summer solstice, the sphinx had come to be associated with the deity Ra-Horakti, a form of Horus and Ra explicitly associated with the western horizon. Given that this was 1,000 years later, perhaps that will give you some sense of how much tradition had built up behind the Egyptian religious mindset. During the New Kingdom, The Sphinx was referred to as the Chosen, and newly crowned kings would come to the Sphinx temple to make dedications and be anointed in their duties. The Sphinx stood in as a representation of the primeval deity Horus, and his connection to the fourth dynasty was thought to live on in the new pharaoh, a hereditary symbolism I have mentioned previously, but always consider it worth repeating. While a king came to the throne, an individual and new ruler, He remained always connected to the august lineage of his predecessors. Beyond simple legacy though, these rulers were connected intimately with his own person, for he was simply a new incarnation of the eternal office of kingship which was embodied in Horus. Carfrae's monumental sphinx not only embodied this notion utterly and established it in the form of eternal stone, but it also furthered the limits of royal iconography, and pushed boundaries of how explicit the connection between king and sun god could be made. The philosophically minded individual might see this as the apex of solar royal cult theologies, as they've been developing so far. Not only does the king now explicitly identify himself as the son of Rei and incorporates the name of Rei into his own personal name, but the monuments he builds in connection with his tomb are so explicitly tied into veneration of the sun that they will themselves come to be associated with the god in future eons. It's pretty much ticking every box that we hinted at in the first couple episodes, when the god Horus came to be associated more and more with the king. By the point of Khafre, all the gloves are off and the Egyptian kings are running full tilt at godhood both in life and death. Fun times, yes? But like any good god, Carfrae reached eternity sooner than he wanted, but reach it he did, and he was duly interred in his monument at Giza, slumbering beneath the bedrock. Across the Giza plateau stretches his complex, from which the proper rituals and offerings could be made at three separate temples, each one offering to his soul in slightly different manners. But what of his family? More specifically, what about his wife? You may have noticed that, so far, I have spoken very little on the subject of Egyptian women, royal or non-royal. There is a reason for this, and I want to explain it right now. Coming up, very soon, a woman is going to rise to prominence among the royal family that will outstrip any queen that has come before, and she has left us far more evidence than any woman in Egypt so far. So when we reach this queen, I will dedicate as much of that episode as necessary to describing in full detail all the things that we know about the Old Kingdom Queens, and women in general. Like most periods of Egyptian history, we know less about their role the further back in time we go, but once we reach this queen, I will be able to tell you a lot more than I could at this exact moment in the narrative. But don't fret, women are going to start appearing more and more, and I don't ignore them for the sake of it. What about the princes? Like the women, they remain somewhat shadowy, but that is about to change. Next week. We will meet a son of Khafre who shows up in the royal annals in the act of laying out his last will and testament. We will see the extent of his wealth and properties, as well as the formula by which a man in Egypt made his last bequests. It is a fascinating little document, and I look forward to describing it to you. But for now, we have reached the end of this week's episode. Join me in a week for the next reign in Egypt's fourth dynasty, a young man who ascends to the throne following his father Khafre. This man is known today as Men Kaore, and he is the third of the Giza Pyramid Builders. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty, to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.